Welcome to Unlocking Impact. I'm your host, Sarah Schoenfeld, CEO of the Trade Impact Foundation. In this podcast, we explore issues at the intersection of the global economy, sustainability, and human rights. Today, I talked to Deanna Clark Esposito, the founder and managing attorney of the international trade law firm, Clark Esposito Law Firm. In today's conversation, Deanna and I discuss the topic of diversity and inclusion in the workplace and how we can improve the conversations that we're all having. Deanna helps us better understand the ways to approach these oftentimes uncomfortable topics and how leadership can support all employees in their organization. Deanna also explains how the education system can be a powerful tool in expanding representation across industries and across professions. Deanna is an international trade attorney helping streamline global business operations for importers and exporters around the world. She is also an author of a practical guide to fashion law and compliance. Deanna served as the president of the New York chapter of the Organization for Women in International Trade and earned her JD from Tulane University. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about diversity and inclusion and all, and all these very important issues. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we get into our discussion, can you first tell us a little bit about you and what you do and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, thanks, thank you again, Sarah, for having me on here. Uh, my name is Deanna Clark. I am the founding attorney at the Clark Esposito Law Firm. We're a New York City-based firm, and we help growing companies who import and export with complying with government regulations. And I got into this, you know, I like to say out of luck. I got into uh, doing international trade law because I had really just, you know, I'd lived abroad several times. I had wanted to find something, you know, working in the international realm. And, you know, honestly, I just happened to come across, you know, a job at an international trade firm. I found I loved the subject matter. I loved working with materials from other countries. And, you know, ultimately I ended up staying. So that's sort of the backstory. And then, of course, with that, I had some loves. You know, I have a love of fashion. Um, I found myself teaching at the Fashion Institute of Technology, teaching international business law. Um, I love teaching in general. I love supporting women. Sarah, you and I know each other from the Organization of Women in International Trade and what a wonderful group that is. Um, So, you know, all along the way, I've had mentors, a lot of female mentors, and uh, really the support of many others is, is what's brought me to where I am today. So turning to today's topic, um, how can we encourage conversations about diversity and inclusion, which can be really difficult conversations to speak about in a workplace? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in terms of encouraging conversations on diversity and inclusion, it's important to actually start with who are we planning to have this discussion with and let's get their buy-in. Ask the people who are working at your organization, you know, how do you suggest we talk about this? You want to have their buy-in, right? So in order 
to start having the conversations, you want to gain the buy-in. And also because we influence those around us, you know, if it's, oh, well, Jesse, you know, suggested this method or, you know, Elizabeth chimes in, oh, well, I think this would be a good way. Um, then it's, oh, okay, you know, they feel safe discussing it in this way. Why don't, you know, why don't I try it out if if they're willing to in this way, you know, make sense for them. Um, those are, you know, a couple of ways because it's not really the kind of subject where it's like today, you know, we're talking about diversity and inclusion. Um, we're hearing so much of this phrase being thrown around. So, you know, then it's, well, well what does that even really mean? While I was at the Fashion Institute, I had the pleasure of serving on their university's diversity council. And what we were looking at, you know, and I think when most people hear this idea of diversity and inclusion, they're thinking, oh, it's about race, you know. Well, no, actually, it's not, it's not about race exclusively. We were looking, of course, transgender, you know, that had been a very big topic as around the country we were shifting to how do we change our restrooms to accommodate, you know, those who don't necessarily identify as him or her or what have you. We were also looking at veterans. We're looking at people with different physical abilities. So, you know, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, it's not something in a vacuum, but everybody thinks, oh, okay, so well, then that's going to be about this group of people or that group of people. Or it's not talking about who we are, you know, and let's not forget, I mean, when we even break things down on, along class lines, we're dealing with very, very different lives. And as a result, different mindsets, different things are coming to the classroom in the case of FIT, you know, coming there with. So I, I think also, you know, where we're trying to raise the topic of diversity and inclusion, we want to also explain that, no, this isn't only about race. Here's the spectrum of what we're looking at at our organization. Yeah. And, and it's so difficult sometimes to communicate these complicated issues about diversity and inclusion because a company would like to take a certain stance that they've developed in terms of being a welcoming community, for, for example. And let's say that company is looking to implement policies that allow, you know, that allow them to, to turn their intentions into action. And one thing you spoke to was about the buy-in. Something I, I hadn't really thought through is that a company with all these intentions looking to turn it into action, that's a very important step of understanding those who actually work in your company and their experience and their perspective and making sure that what you're going to end up with is an authentic, helpful discussion, right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, I think it's also important to recognize that people are intimidated by these conversations. Absolutely. You know, and so one of the things that as a leader of an organization, first off, I always get buy-in from the team on almost everything, really virtually everything, even down to how we hire. I've got others on the team involved. And, you know, with a topic this sensitive and something that several feel nervous about getting into that conversation. And I think as leaders, it's important to understand 
let's get people comfortable with the idea that this is even going to take place. You know, this can't be something like, oh, guess what we're having the, you know, this month? Oh, it's Black History Month. So each week, you know, we're going to have one on uh, implicit bias. And, you know, you can't just roll things out in that way. Uh, you can, but it may not be received as well as it could be. Um, give your team some lead time. Hey, this has been in the news a lot. People have come to me with questions. Others, you know, leading other organizations have come to me. And, you know, we're trying to put our heads together on this. We've got some ideas. And of course, go ahead and get their buy-in. What do you think would be helpful? And so if you are, whether you're, you know, running a company or if you are the head of a department and trying to have some of these conversations in advance of that conversation on diversity and inclusion, you know, what sort of materials? I know we talked about getting people's buy-in beforehand, sending out that that request to kind of hear everyone's thoughts and perspectives on what could be useful. Um, but then once you're moving on to having these conversations, what should a company, whether it's a department head or a business manager, what could they provide to the group to move everyone into an inclusive mindset and ready for these difficult but important conversations? Well, the first thing that needs to happen is some real thought needs to be had by the management team on what are they even trying to accomplish. And even with that list of what they're trying to accomplish, which thing on that list and by when? It's such a sensitive topic. Not everything can be tackled in one day at our diversity and inclusion forum. No. You know, what are the real goals behind this? But when you're having individuals who are of different races, different ethnicities, different cultures, what advice would you provide to helping to bridge some of those gaps in understanding each other's perspectives and experiences? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I have traveled to more than two dozen countries. I have lived abroad several times. I have been to a lot of those countries multiple times, Asia, Africa, Europe, of course, uh, North America, Central America. There are things that leadership can do in preparing for these meetings that can cut across cultures. And they can do that by looking at who is in their organization, what cultural themes are there that they can draw from. Uh, and look, you know, leadership may not know. So guess what? You go hire people who can help you with this. Um, nobody expects, you know, the leadership to have all the answers. And so what we do expect from leadership, you know, is to make sure that the, the work environment is one that is supporting all of the employees, mm -hmm. you know, which goes to a bigger issue, by the way. I don't know to what extent employers are serving um, the people who work for them on how they can actually support them in their professional and personal goals. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that we do at my firm because, you know, I value and I'm part of, you know, the leadership, I value individual growth, both personal and professional. And I think it's critical that we can support everybody who works for us, whether full-time or part-time, in their personal growth. Um, you know, when I think about what leaders can do, I always circle back to 
who are the leaders, what are their values, and what are they trying to actually achieve? Something you wrote about recently is about why it's important that companies publicize their diversity and inclusion positions. And that's something that I really was taken by when you you put out this article. And what I loved about it, and I want to get your perspective on this, what I loved about it was you focused a lot on what we can do to make things better. And I love that. So can you talk a little bit about why it's important for companies to publicize their position on diversity and inclusion? Absolutely. But let me start by giving you the backstory of what, um, of how it came to be that I found myself talking about why it's important to publicize your position on diversity and inclusion as a company. You know, last year, I was last year or the year before, somebody who knew me connected me with, I'll describe him as a middle-aged white man. He was actually older. He was, um, I think, in his early 60s. And he contacted me because he wanted to understand how he could create a more diverse team at his law firm. Now, you know, of course, I was curious, you know, why are you interested in this? And the truth is, he thought it was important to have a diverse team for business purposes. Um, And specifically, he was having trouble recruiting African-Americans. So I'm part African-American. He said, okay, you know, you may have some answers and maybe my experience on the diversity council, you know, I have a little more training in diversity than most attorneys in any case. So he wanted to understand how can I find them? How can I attract them? How do you find senior level African-American attorneys? You know, and, and did I have any information to share with him? So, you know, the first thing I did was I thanked him for having the courage to even come and ask me that question. Because, you know, it's certainly not not the kind of question you get every day, you know. <laughs> and I also know how race is a difficult subject for people to talk about. And from discussions I've had with other middle-aged white men, it, it, it is a hard topic for them to talk about. And they're not even sure how to or can I, for that matter. Uh, so I thanked him for his courage for coming to me with, with the question. I was trying to help him then assess how can he both find and attract, you know, the talent. And in addition, of course, you have to figure out how to keep them as well. And, you know, so I started just asking a series of questions. Did they have a statement on their website related to diversity and inclusion? And his answer was no. Okay. Well, you know, did their job description state that the company was an equal opportunity employer and welcomed applications from diverse backgrounds? Now, the answer was no. Okay. And, you know, just having those things on a website right there is letting the public know, letting your customers know, and of course, letting potential hires know that you do have an inclusive environment. I then asked him, okay, well, did he attend any functions? And I will refer to lawyer things because that's what I know. Did he attend bar association functions for minorities? And take your pick, certainly in New York City, you know, which group, everyone's there down to the Southeast Asians have their own group, you know, lawyer group, where he could meet minority candidates. The answer was no. Mm -hmm. Did he ever post a job through any of the Black, you know, bar associations since he was specifically looking for a senior level, you know, African-American attorney? 
The answer was no. Okay. Okay, well, have you joined any as a member? No, the answer was no. Had he gone and posted job listings at, for example, Howard University School of Law, you know, a school known to have large numbers of African-American students, of course, alumni can still access the careers, you know, portal. The answer was no. Okay, so even though all of those answers were no, having given all of those ideas, those answers actually turned into not yet. And you know, he wondered, well, will they allow me to join? <laughs> and I remember with the women in trade group, I'd have men, you know, one who became a very good board member actually has a freight forwarding company. Oh, well, can men join? Yes, men can join. And it's the same with any of the minority bar associations can absolutely join. And I think uh, I think that is a common misconception and and as part of a, you know different women's groups I think that's something that commonly came up where people they might not even if they they'd like to support the group of individuals of the minority they aren't sure if they're like you said allowed to join as a member or like you said like one of your suggestions in terms of posting a job at the Black Lawyers Bar Association, I think that is a common misconception that, oh, I can't post a job there because I'm not Black myself. That's right. And of course you can, (laughs) you know, so, and listen, you know, on a personal level, even just yesterday, I was looking at some, you know, some maritime associations for the firm to join. And I mean, all the photos only you know, people with white skin only. I didn't see any Latinos. I didn't see other Asian, of course, no black people and mainly men. uh, But I already know that about, you know, international trade in the maritime industry. Again, you know, and this is why I talked earlier about the lead in or, you know, speaking on giving people a chance to get used to the idea. I already know that never mind women in international trade. There's so few black people in international trade. And knowing that actually helps me feel less comfortable. Uh, I'm sorry, less uncomfortable because I know what to expect. You know, when I attended my first court of international trade event, I was blown away at the lack of diversity. And that's because I had been litigating cases in Brooklyn housing court, which is virtually all minorities and certainly 10 inside. And then to come into this environment was very strange and even stranger to see how the minorities that were there always worked for the government. There were almost no private sector attorneys. Um, Actually, there were no private sector attorneys who were African-American or Asian. I'm half Chinese, except me. I was the only private sector attorney, you know, and I know that's the case, you know, Um, and I'm working on something actually to try and change that. But you know, I, I can tell you from my own personal experience, understanding and having my own expectation of, you know, what to expect actually makes it more comfortable. Um, and so coming back even to the diversity piece, I think if leadership can say this will be uncomfortable, you know, be prepared to be uncomfortable, then and then start the programming like, OK, some of you, you know, not necessarily all of you, but some of you will feel uncomfortable with what we're talking about today. And that's OK. I will, too you know. Yeah. Well, I think also giving individuals the nod of, you you know, if you're here to listen and learn, that's okay. You can observe. You don't have to actively participate. You being here is 
your participation and support. And that's okay. I think it's important to express that it's okay to listen and learn with an open mind. Deanna, you talked a little bit about looking around and seeing a lack of diversity within a profession. You know, I'm really interested in understanding if at the education level, you know, looking at the education system that then feeds into the workforce, is there something that we can do within the education system or to support the education system to facilitate a future where we do see more diversity in professional settings? Well, the answer to that is, of course. And then the question, of course, that's always followed up behind it is, with whose funding? So, you know, I can think of different examples, even in my own youth. I'll give an example. So I'm a San Francisco native. And we had from UC Berkeley, which is a nearby university, we had them come to our junior high to offer Saturday school to help students with doing better in basically STEM, you know, what we'd call STEM now. And so anybody could attend. It was Saturday school. So that meant being, in my case, across town at a junior college where the junior college gave them the space to hold these meetings. And I was able to participate in them. I was able to understand, oh, okay, when I start in ninth grade, I must start with a foreign language because if you don't have four years of foreign language, you don't even meet the prerequisites to apply. When you look at state funding for education, it's pathetic. So, you know, recognizing that then it falls on the private sector. And so what initiatives do the foundations of big banks, for example, have their philanthropy wing, right? You know, do they want to support things like this? Are there law firms who want to support initiatives like this? Are there people who simply care, who are willing to put their money into something to support initiatives like this? And when speaking about your experience, it sounds like that was that was even at the middle school level. Was that? Yes. That's really interesting. I think a lot of the times we hear about high school initiatives and and how, you know, obviously high school is feeding into college, right? And we think about it that way. But in many instances, individuals need that support earlier and and can be you know, their future, their career can even start to be bolstered at that middle school level. Is that is that how you felt? It must be. I served here in New York City on an advisory board for the Urban Academy School of Global Commerce, which is specifically to train young people to go into professions in the maritime and international trade industries. And I realized, you know, as some of the seniors who were performing very well academically were looking at universities, they were ruled out of University of California, as an example, because they did not have four years of language. And not only that, the high school didn't offer four years of language. It only offered two years of language because it was a relatively new high school. And so we must understand at the junior high level what is needed at the college level so that we can apply to the appropriate high school and get the courses we need so that we fulfill the prerequisites. It really does need to go back that uh, that young. And then, I mean, with that example, maybe it's also the college level looking back and thinking critically about, well, maybe that's not the right requirement. Maybe we don't need four years of language for everybody because maybe we don't have that access universally and we're not being as inclusive as we can be 
with this requirement. Well, and even the idea of these different schools, because the urban academy schools specialize in different things around New York City. You know, in to your point, yes, the whole idea is let's have these schools because not everybody needs to go and attend university style of university. Others can go to a more directed university, like we have our SUNY Maritime or there's California Maritime. Always want to give props to my maritime schools. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you're you're right. And and I think sometimes in, in different industries, it's not as accepted to take a different path on the education side, right? We do look for a very uniform workforce when it comes to the education of that workforce. Well, certainly in law, we have a very regimented system, you know, for sure. Okay, Deanna, let's shift gears to my wrap-up question here. Um, so this is a little bit different. It can be related to diversity or it can be absolutely unrelated. Outside of your day-to-day, what is one thing that you, Deanna, are currently working on learning, growing, or further developing yourself? Well, I'll tell you, you know, aside from um, Aikido, so it's a martial art, it's a Japanese martial art, aside from going to Aikido a few times a week, on a more intellectual, social I guess you might even call it progressive level. I have been working on something with my best friend related to increasing the number of Black lawyers in general. And we are looking as going as far back as middle school in order to do that. And with that, there's also another piece to it where we're simply supporting all Black lawyers. Thank you, Deanna. And thank you for all the work that you do on diversity and inclusion and supporting those who are working at growing their career. <laughs> you got it. Thanks for having me, Sarah. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with Deanna today and hearing her thoughts on how we can improve the way we approach diversity and inclusion conversations and even ways to intervene at an earlier stage. One takeaway for me was how important it is for leadership to identify what it is they would like to achieve when it comes to diversity and inclusion so that the intention turns into real impact. And as Deanna explained, leadership is not expected to have all the answers, but they are expected to enable a work environment that supports all employees. Deanna also highlighted the importance of looking critically at the education system and supporting diverse communities from a young age to provide the guidance and support that will drive a more diverse workforce. Thanks a lot for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time on Unlocking Impact. If you have a minute to rate or review the show, we really appreciate that. Thanks a lot.